Hello, and welcome back to Ken Reads the Classics. Now we continue with Moby Dick, or The Whale, by Herman Melville. Chapter 88, Schools and Schoolmasters The previous chapter gave an account of an immense body or herd of sperm whales, and there was also then given the probable cause inducing those vast aggregations. Now, though such great bodies are at times encountered, yet, as must have been seen, even at the present day, small detached bands are occasionally observed, embracing from twenty to fifty individuals each. Such bands are known as schools. They generally are of two sorts those composed almost entirely of females, and those mustering none but young, vigorous males, or bulls, as they are familiarly designated. In cavalier attendance upon the school of females, you invariably see a male of full-grown magnitude, but not old, who, upon any alarm, evinces his gallantry by falling in the rear and covering the flight of his ladies. In truth, This gentleman is a luxurious ottoman, swimming about over the watery world, surroundingly accompanied by all the solaces and endearments of the harem. The contrast between this ottoman and his concubines is striking, because while he is always of the largest leviathonic proportions, the ladies, even at full growth, are not more than one-third of the bulk of an average-sized male. They are comparatively delicate indeed, I dare say, not to exceed half a dozen yards round the waist. Nevertheless, it cannot be denied that upon the whole they are hereditarily entitled to en bon pont. It is very curious to watch this harem and its lord in their indolent ramblings. Like fashionables, they are forever on the move in leisurely search of variety. You meet them on the line in time for the full flower of the equatorial feeding season, having just returned, perhaps, from spending the summer in the northern seas, and so cheating summer of all unpleasant weariness and warmth. By the time they have lounged up and down the promenade of the equator a while, they start for the oriental waters in anticipation of the cool season there, and so evade the other excessive temperature of the year. When serenely advancing on one of these journeys, if any strange suspicious sights are seen, my Lord Whale keeps a wary eye on his interesting family. Should any unwarrantably pert young Leviathan coming that way presume to draw confidentially close to one of the ladies, with what prodigious fury the Basha assails him and chases him away? High times indeed, if unprincipled young rakes like him are to be permitted to invade the sanctity of domestic bliss. Though do what the Basha will, he cannot keep the most notorious Lothario out of his bed. For alas, all fish bed in common. As ashore, the ladies often cause the most terrible duels among their rival admirers, just so with the whales, who sometimes come to deadly battle. And all for love. They fence with their long lower jaws, sometimes locking them together, and so striving for the supremacy like elks that warringly interweave their antlers. Not a few are captured having the deep scars of these encounters. Furrowed heads, broken teeth, scalloped fins, and in some instances, wrenched and dislocated mouths. But supposing the invader of domestic bliss to betake himself away at the first rush of the harem's lord, then it is very diverting to watch that lord. Gently he insinuates his vast bulk among them again and revels there a while, still in tantalizing vicinity to young Lothario, like pious Solomon devoutly worshipping among his thousand concubines. Granting other whales to be in sight, the fishermen will seldom give chase to one of these grand Turks, for these grand Turks are too lavish of their strength 
and hence their unctuousness is small. As for the sons and the daughters they beget, why, those sons and daughters must take care of themselves, at least with only the maternal help. For like certain other omnivorous roving lovers that might be named, my Lord Whale has no taste for the nursery, however much for the bower. And so, being a great traveler, he leaves his anonymous babies all over the world, every baby an exotic. In good time, nevertheless, as the ardor of youth declines, as years and dumps increase, and as reflection lends her solemn pauses, in short, as a general lassitude overtakes the sated Turk, then a love of ease and virtue supplants the love for maidens. Our Ottoman enters upon the impotent, repentant, admonitory stage of life, forswears, disbands the harem, and grown to an exemplary sulky old soul, goes about all alone among the meridians and parallels, saying his prayers, and warning each young leviathan from his amorous errors. Now, as the harem of Wales is called by the fishermen a school, so is the lord and master of that school technically known as the schoolmaster. It is therefore not in strict character, however admirably satirical, that after going to school himself, he should then go abroad inculcating not what he learned there, but the folly of it. His title, schoolmaster, would very naturally seem derived from the name bestowed upon the harem itself, but some have surmised that the man who is first thus entitled, this sort of Ottoman whale, must have read the memoirs of Vidocq, and informed himself what sort of a country schoolmaster that famous Frenchman was in his younger days, and what was the nature of those occult lessons he inculcated into some of his pupils. The same secludedness and isolation to which the schoolmaster whale betakes himself in his advancing years is true of all aged sperm whales. Almost universally, a lone whale, as a solitary leviathan is called, proves an ancient one. Like the venerable moss-bearded Daniel Boone, he will have no one near him but nature herself, and her he takes to wife in the wilderness of waters. And the best of wives she is, though she keeps so many moody secrets. The schools composing none but young and vigorous males, previously mentioned, offer a strong contrast to the harem schools. Those female whales are characteristically timid. The young males, or forty-barrel bulls, as they call them, are by far the most pugnacious of all leviathans, and proverbially the most dangerous to encounter, excepting those wondrous gray-headed grizzled whales sometimes met, and these will fight you like grim fiends exasperated by a penal gout. The 40-barrel bull schools are larger than the harem schools. Like a mob of young collegians, they are full of fight, fun, and wickedness, tumbling round the world at such a reckless, rollicking rate that no prudent underwriter would insure them any more than he would a riotous lad at Yale or Harvard. They soon relinquished this turbulence, though, and when about three-fourths grown, break up, and separately go about in quest of settlements, that is, harems. Another point of difference between the male and female schools is still more characteristic of the sexes. Say you strike a forty-barrel bull, poor devil. All his comrades quit him. But strike a member of the harem school, and her companions swim around her with every token of concern sometimes lingering so near her and so long as themselves to fall a prey. Chapter 89. Fast Fish and Loose Fish The allusion to the waifs and waif poles in the last chapter but one necessitates some account of the laws and regulations of the whale fishery, of which the waif may be deemed the grand symbol and badge. It frequently happens that when several ships are cruising in company, a whale may be struck by one vessel, then escape, 
and be finally killed and captured by another vessel. And herein are indirectly comprised many minor contingencies, all partaking of this one grand feature. For example, after a weary and perilous chase and capture of a whale, the body may get loose from the ship by reason of a violent storm, and drifting far away to leeward, be retaken by a second whaler, who, in a calm, snugly tows it alongside without risk of life or line. Thus the most vexatious and violent disputes would often arise between the fishermen, were there not some written or unwritten, universal, undisputed law applicable to all cases. Perhaps the only formal whaling code authorized by legislative enactment was that of Holland. It was decreed by the States General in A.D. 1695. But though no other nation has ever had any written whaling law, yet the American fishermen have been their own legislators and lawyers in this matter. They have provided a system which for terse comprehensiveness surpasses Justinian's pandix and the bylaws of the Chinese Society for the Suppression of Meddling with Other People's Business. Yes, these laws might be engraven on a Queen Anne's farthing or the barb of a harpoon and worn round the neck so small are they. 1. A fast fish belongs to the party fast to it. 2. A loose fish is fair game for anybody who can soonest catch it. But what plays the mischief with this masterly code is the admirable brevity of it which necessitates a vast volume of commentaries to expound it. First, what is a fast fish? Alive or dead, a fish is technically fast when it is connected with an occupied ship or boat by any medium at all controllable by the occupant or occupants. A mast, an oar, a nine-inch cable, a telegraph wire, or a strand of cobweb, it is all the same. Likewise, a fish is technically fast when it bears a waif or any other recognized symbol of possession, so long as the party waifing it plainly evince their ability at any time to take it alongside, as well as their intention to do so. These are scientific commentaries, but the commentaries of the whalemen themselves sometimes consist in hard words and harder knocks. The Coke upon Littleton of the Fist True, among the more upright and honorable whalemen, allowances are always made for peculiar cases, where it would be an outrageous moral justice for one party to claim possession of a whale previously chased or killed by another party, but others are by no means so scrupulous. Some fifty years ago, there was a curious case of whale trover litigated in England, wherein the plaintiffs set forth that after a hard chase of a whale in the northern seas, and when indeed they, the plaintiffs, had succeeded in harpooning the fish, they were at last, through peril of their lives, obliged to forsake not only their lines, but their boat itself. Ultimately, the defendants, the crew of another ship, came up with the whale, struck, killed, seized, and finally appropriated it before the very eyes of the plaintiff. And when those defendants were remonstrated with, their captain snapped his fingers in the plaintiff's teeth and assured them that by way of doxology to the deed he had done, he would now retain their line, harpoons, and boat, which had remained attached to the whale at the time of the seizure. Wherefore, the plaintiffs now sued for the recovery of the value of their whale, line, harpoons, and boat. Mr. Erksine was counsel for the defendants. Lord Ellenborough was the judge. In the course of the defense, the witty Erskine went on to illustrate his position by alluding to a recent Crimcon case wherein a gentleman, after in vain trying to bridle his wife's viciousness, had at last abandoned her upon the seas of life. But in the course of years, repenting of that step, he instituted an action to recover possession of her. Erskine was on the other side, 
and he then supported it by saying that though the gentleman had originally harpooned the lady and had once had her fast, and only by reason of the great stress of her plunging viciousness had at last abandoned her, yet abandoned her he did, so that she became a loose fish. And therefore, when a subsequent gentleman re-harpooned her, the lady then became that subsequent gentleman's property, along with whatever harpoon might have been found sticking in her. Now, in the present case, Erskine contended that the examples of the whale and the lady were reciprocally illustrative of each other. These pleadings and the other pleadings being duly heard, the very learned judge in set terms decided to wit that as for the boat, he awarded it to the plaintiffs because they had merely abandoned it to save their lives. But that with regard to the controverted whale, harpoons, and line, they belonged to the defendants. The whale, because it was a loose fish at the time of the final capture, and the harpoons and line, because when the fish made off with them, it, the fish, acquired a property in those articles, and hence anybody who afterwards took the fish had a right to them. Now the defendants afterwards took the fish. Ergo, the aforesaid articles were theirs. A common man looking at this decision of the very learned judge might possibly object to it. But plowed up to the primary rock of the matter, the two great principles laid down in the twin whaling laws previously quoted and applied and elucidated by Lord Ellenborough in the above-cited case, these two laws touching fast fish and loose fish, I say, will, on reflection, be found the fundamentals of all human jurisprudence. For notwithstanding its complicated tracery of sculpture, the temple of the law, like the temple of the Philistines, has but two props to stand on. Is it not a saying that in every one's mouth, possession is half of the law, that is, regardless of how the thing came into possession? But often possession is the whole of the law. What are the sinews and souls of Russian serfs and Republican slaves but fast fish? Wherefore, possession is the whole of the law. What to the rapacious landlord is the widow's last mite but a fast fish? What is yonder undetected villain's marble mansion with a door plate for a waif? What is that but a fast fish? What is the ruinous discount for which Mordecai, the broker, gets from poor Wobegon, the bankrupt, on a loan to keep Wobegon's family from starvation? What is that ruinous discount but a fast fish? What is the Archbishop of Save Souls' income of 100,000 pounds seized from the scant bread and cheese of hundreds of thousands of broken-backed laborers, all sure of heaven without any of Save Souls' help? What is that globular 100,000 but a fast fish? What are the Duke of Dunder's hereditary towns and hamlets but fast fish? What to that redoubted harpooner John Bull is poor Ireland but a fast fish? What to that apostolic lancer brother Jonathan is Texas but a fast fish? And concerning all these, is not possession the whole of the law? But if the doctrine of fast fish be pretty generally applicable, the kindred doctrine of loose fish is still more widely so, that is, internationally and universally applicable. What was America in 1492 but a loose fish, in which Columbus struck the Spanish standard by way of wafing it for his royal master and mistress? What was Poland to the Tsar? What Greece to the Turk? What India to England? What at last will Mexico be to the United States? All loose fish. What are the rights of man and the liberties of the world but loose fish? What all men's minds and opinions but loose fish? What is the principle of religious belief in them but a loose fish? What to the ostentatious smuggling verbalists are the thoughts of thinkers but loose fish? What is the great globe itself but a loose fish? 
And what are you, reader, but a loose fish and a fast fish too? Chapter 90 Heads or Tails De balena vero suficit, si rex aviat caput, et regina caudam. Bracton, I3, C3. Latin from the books of the laws of England, which taken along with the context, means that of all whales captured by anybody on the coast of that land, the king, as honorary grand harpooner, must have the head, and the queen be respectively presented with the tail. A division which, in the whale, is much like having an apple. There is no intermediate remainder. Now as this law, under a modified form, is to this day in force in England, and as it offers in various respects a strange anomaly touching the general law of fast and loose fish, it is here treated of in a separate chapter, on the same courteous principle that prompts the English railways to be at the expense of a separate car, specially reserved for the accommodation of royalty. In the first place, in curious proof of the fact that the above-mentioned law is still in force, I proceed to lay before you a circumstance that happened within the last two years. It seems that some honest mariners of Dover, or Sandwich, or some one of the sink ports, had, after a hard chase, succeeded in killing and beaching a fine whale, which they had originally descried afar off from the shore. Now the sink ports are partially or somehow under the jurisdiction of a sort of policeman or beadle called a Lord Warden. Holding the office directly from the crown, I believe, all the royal emoluments incident to the sink port territories become by assignment his. By some writers, this office is called a sinecure, but not so because the Lord Warden is busily employed at times in fobbing his perquisites, which are his chiefly by virtue of that same fobbing of them. Now, when these poor sunburnt mariners, barefooted and with their trousers rolled high up on their ely legs, had wearily hauled their fat fish high and dry, promising themselves a good 150 pounds from the precious oil and bone, and in fantasy sipping rare tea with their wives and good ale with their cronies, upon the strength of their respective shares, up steps a very learned and most Christian and charitable gentleman, with a copy of Blackstone under his arm, and laying it upon the whale's head, he says, Hands off! This fish, my masters, is a fast fish. I seize it as the Lord Warden's. Upon this poor mariners in their respectful consternation, so truly English, knowing not what to say, fall to vigorously scratching their heads all around, meanwhile ruefully glancing from the whale to the stranger. But that did in no wise mend the matter, or at all soften the hard heart of the learned gentleman with the copy of Blackstone. At length one of them, after long scratching about for his ideas, made bold to speak. Please, sir, who is the Lord Warden? The Duke. But the Duke had nothing to do with taking this fish. It is his. We have been at great trouble and peril and some expense, and is all that to go to the Duke's benefit? We getting nothing at all for our pains but our blisters? It is his. Is the duke so very poor as to be forced to this desperate mode of getting a livelihood? It is his. I thought to relieve my old bedridden mother by part of my share of this whale. It is his. Won't the duke be content with a quarter or a half? It is his. In a word, the whale was seized and sold, and his grace the Duke of Wellington received the money. Thinking that viewed in some particular lights, the case might by a bare possibility in some small degree be deemed 
under the circumstances, a rather hard one, an honest clergyman of the town respectfully addressed a note to his grace, begging him to take the case of those unfortunate mariners into full consideration. To which my lord duke in substance replied, both letters were published, that he had already done so and received the money and would be obliged to the reverend gentleman if for the future he, the reverend gentleman, would decline meddling with other people's business. Is this the still militant old man standing at the corners of the three kingdoms on all hands coercing alms of beggars? It will readily be seen that in this case the alleged right of the duke to the whale was a delegated one from the sovereign. We must needs inquire then on what principle the sovereign is originally invested with that right. The law itself has already been set forth, but Plowden gives us reason for it. Says Plowden, the whale so caught belongs to the king and queen because of its superior excellence. And by the soundest commentators, this has ever been held a cogent argument in such matters. But why should the king have the head and the queen the tail? A reason for that, ye lawyers. In his treatise on Queen Gold, or Queen Pin Money, an old king's bench author, one William Prynne, thus discourseth, Ye tail is ye queen's that ye queen's wardrobe may be supplied with ye whalebone. Now this was written at a time when the black limber bone of the green whale or right whale was largely used in ladies' bodices. But this same bone is not in the tail. It is in the head, which is a sad mistake for a sagacious lawyer like Prynne. But is the queen a mermaid to be presented with a tail? An allegorical meaning may lurk here. There are two royal fish so styled by the English law writers, the whale and the sturgeon, both royal property under certain limitations, and nominally supplying the tenth branch of the crown's ordinary revenue. I know not that any other author has hinted of the matter, but by inference it seems to me that the sturgeon must be divided in the same way as the whale the king receiving the highly dense and elastic head peculiar to that fish, which, symbolically regarded, may possibly be humorously grounded upon some presumed congeniality, and thus there seems a reason in all things, even in law. Chapter 91. The Pequod Meets the Rosebud in vain it was to rake for ambergris in the paunch of this leviathan, insufferable fetter denying not inquiry. Sir T. Brown, V.E. It was a week or two after the last whaling scene recounted, and when we were slowly sailing over a sleepy, vapory, midday sea, that the many noses on the Pequod's deck proved more vigilant discoverers than the three pairs of eyes aloft. A peculiar and not very pleasant smell was smelt in the air. I will bet something now, said Stubb, that somewhere hereabouts are some of those drugged whales we tickled the other day. I thought they would keel up before long. Presently, the vapors in advance slid aside, and there in the distance lay a ship, whose furled sails betokened that some sort of whale must be alongside. As we glided nearer, the stranger showed French colors from his peak, and by the eddying cloud of vulture sea-fowl that circled and hovered and swooped around him, it was plain that the whale alongside must be what the fishermen call a blasted whale, that is, a whale that has died unmolested on the sea, and so floated an unappropriated corpse. It may well be conceived what an unsavory odor such a mass must exhale, worse than an Assyrian city in the plague, when the living are incompetent to bury the departed. So intolerable indeed is it regarded by some that no cupidity could persuade them to moor alongside of it. 
Yet there are those who will still do it, notwithstanding the fact that the oil obtained from such subjects is of a very inferior quality and by no means of the nature of attar of rose. Coming still nearer with the expiring breeze, we saw that the Frenchman had a second whale alongside, and this second whale seemed even more of a nosegay than the first. In truth, it turned out to be one of those problematical whales that seemed to dry up and die with a sort of prodigious dyspepsia or indigestion leaving their defunct bodies almost entirely bankrupt of anything like oil. Nevertheless, in the proper place, we shall see that no knowing fisherman will ever turn up his nose at such a whale as this, however much he may shun blasted whales in general. The Pequod had now swept so high to the stranger that Stubb vowed he recognized his cutting spade pole entangled in the lines that were knotted round the tail of one of these whales. There's a pretty fellow now, he banteringly laughed, standing in the ship's bows. There's a jackal for ye. I well know that these crapos of Frenchmen are but poor devils in the fishery, sometimes lowering their boats for breakers, mistaking them for sperm whale spouts. Yes, and sometimes sailing from their port with their hold full of boxes of tallow candles and cases of snuffers, foreseeing that all the oil they will get won't be enough to dip the captain's wick into. Ay, we all know these things, but look ye, here's a crapo that is content with our leavings, the drugged whale there, I mean. I and is content too with scraping the dry bones of that other precious fish he has there. Poor devil. I say, pass round a hat, someone, and let's make him a present of a little oil for dear charity's sake. For what oil he'll get from that drugged whale there wouldn't be fit to burn in a jail. No, not in a condemned cell. And as for the other whale, why, I'll agree to get more oil by chopping up and trying out these three masts of ours than he'll get from that bundle of bones. Though, now that I think of it, it may contain something worth a good deal more than oil. Yes, ambergris. I wonder now if our old man has thought of that. It's worth trying. Yes, I'm for it. And so saying, he started for the quarterdeck. By this time, the faint air had become a complete calm, so that whether or no, the Pequod was now fairly entrapped in the smell, with no hope of escaping except by its breezing up again. Issuing from the cabin, Stubb now called his boat's crew and pulled off for the stranger. Drawing across her bow, he perceived that in accordance with the fanciful French taste the upper part of her stem piece was carved in the likeness of a huge drooping stalk, was painted green, and for thorns had copper spikes projecting from it here and there, the whole terminating in a symmetrical folded bulb of a bright red color. Upon her headboards, in large gilt letters, he read, Bouton du Rose, Rosebutton, or Rosebud, and this was the romantic name of this aromatic ship. Though Stubb did not understand the bouton part of the inscription, yet the word rose and the bulbous figurehead put together sufficiently explained the whole to him. A wooden rosebud, eh? he cried with his hand to his nose. That will do very well, but how like all creation it smells. Now in order to hold direct communication with the people on the deck, he had to pull round the bows to the starboard side and thus come close to the blasted whale, and so talk over it. Arrived then at this spot, with one hand still to his nose, he bawled, Bouton de Rose, ahoy! Are there any of you Bouton de Roses that speak English? Yes, required a Guernsey man from the bulwarks, who turned out to be the chief mate. Well then, my Bouton de Rose bud, have you seen the white whale? What whale? The white whale, a sperm whale, Moby Dick, have you seen him? Never heard of such a whale, Cachalot Blanche, white whale, no. Very good, then, 
Goodbye now, and I'll call again in a minute. Then pulling back towards the Pequod and seeing Ahab leaning over the quarter-deck rail awaiting his report, he molded his two hands into a trumpet and shouted, No, sir, no, upon which Ahab retired and Stubb returned to the Frenchman. He now perceived that the Guernsey man, who had just got into the chains and was using a cutting spade, had slung his nose in a sort of bag. "'What's the matter with your nose there?' said Stubb. "'Broke it?' "'I wish it was broken, or that I didn't have any nose at all,' answered the Guernsey man, who did not seem to relish the job he was at very much. "'But what are you holding yours for?' "'Oh, nothing. It's a wax nose. I have to hold it on. "'Fine day, ain't it? Air rather gardeny, I should say. "'Throw us a bunch of posies, will ye?' Bouton de Rose. What in the devil's name do you want here? roared the Guernsey man, flying into a sudden passion. Oh, keep cool, keep cool. Yes, that's the word. Why don't you pack those whales in ice while you're working at them? But joking aside, though, do you know, Rosebud, that it's all nonsense trying to get any oil out of such whales? As for that dried-up one there, he hasn't a gill in his whole carcass. I know that well enough, but, you see, the captain here won't believe it. This is his first voyage. He was a cologne manufacturer before. But come aboard, and mayhap he'll believe you, if he won't me. And so I'll get out of this dirty scrape. Anything to oblige ye, my sweet and pleasant fellow, rejoined Stubb, and with that he soon mounted to the deck. There a queer scene presented itself. The sailors, in tasseled caps of red worsted, were getting the heavy tackles in readiness for the whales. But they worked rather slow and talked very fast, and seemed in anything but good humor. All their noses upwardly projected from their faces like so many jib-booms. Now and then pairs of them would drop their work and run up to the masthead to get some fresh air. Some, thinking they would catch the plague, dipped oakum in coal tar, and at intervals held it to their nostrils. Others, having broken the stems of their pipes almost short off at the bowl, were vigorously puffing tobacco smoke, so that it constantly filled their old factories. Stubb was struck by a shower of outcries and anathemas proceeding from the captain's roundhouse abaft, and looking in that direction saw a fiery face thrust from behind the door, which was held ajar from within. This was the tormented surgeon, who, after in vain remonstrating against the proceedings of the day, had betaken himself to the captain's roundhouse, cabinet, he called it, to avoid the pest, but still could not help yelling out his entreaties and indignations at times. Marking all this, Stubb argued well for his scheme and turning to the Guernsey man, had a little chat with him, during which the stranger mate expressed his detestation of his captain as a conceited ignoramus, who had brought them all into so unsavory and unprofitable a pickle. Sounding him carefully, Stubb further perceived that the Guernsey man had not the slightest suspicion concerning the ambergris. He therefore held his peace on that head, but otherwise was quite frank and confidential with him, so that the two quickly concocted a little plan for both circumventing and satirizing the captain without his at all dreaming of distrusting their sincerity. According to this little plan of theirs, the Guernsey man, under cover of an interpreter's office, was to tell the captain what he pleased, but as coming from Stubb. And as for Stubb, he was to utter any nonsense that should come uppermost in him during the interview. By this time, their destined victim appeared from his cabin. He was a small and dark, but rather delicate-looking man for a sea captain, with large whiskers and mustache, however, and wore a red cotton velvet vest with watch seals at his side. To this gentleman, Stubb was now politely introduced by the Guernsey man, who at once ostentatiously put on the aspect of interpreting between them. What shall I say to him first, he said, 
Why, said Stubb, eyeing the velvet vest and the watch and seals, you may as well begin by telling him that he looks a sort of babyish to me, though I don't pretend to be a judge. He says, monsieur, said the Jersey man in French, turning to his captain, that only yesterday his ship spoke a vessel, whose captain and chief mate, with six sailors, had all died of a fever caught from a blasted whale they had brought alongside. Upon this, the captain started and eagerly desired to know more. What now? said the Jersey man to Stubb. Why, since he takes it so easy, tell him that now I have eyed him carefully. I'm quite certain that he's no more fit to command a whale ship than a St. Jago monkey. In fact, tell him for me he's a baboon. He vows and declares, monsieur, that the other whale, the dried one, is far more deadly than the blasted one. In fine, monsieur, he conjures us, as we value our lives, to cut loose from these fish. Instantly the captain ran forward, and in a loud voice commanded his crew to desist from hoisting the cutting tackles, and at once cast loose the cables and chains confining the whales to the ship. What now, said the Guernsey man, when the captain had returned, Why, let me see. Yes, you may as well tell him that, that, in fact, tell him I've diddled him, and, aside to himself, perhaps somebody else. He says, monsieur, that he's very happy to have been of any service to us. This, the captain vowed that they were the grateful parties, meaning himself and mate, and concluded by inviting Stubb down into his cabin to drink a bottle of Bordeaux. He wants you to take a glass of wine with him, said the interpreter. Thank him heartily, but tell him it's against my principles to drink with the man I've diddled. In fact, tell him I must go. He says, monsieur, that his principles won't admit of his drinking, but that if monsieur wants to live another day to drink, then monsieur had best drop all four boats and pull the ship away from these whales, for it's so calm they won't drift. By this time, Stubb was over the side, and getting into his boat, hailed the Guernsey man to this effect, that having a long tow line in his boat, he would do what he could to help them, by pulling out the lighter whale of the two from the ship's side. While the Frenchman's boats then were engaged in towing the ship one way, Stubb benevolently towed away at his whale the other way, ostentatiously slacking out a most unusually long tow-line. Presently, a breeze sprang up. Stubb feigned to cast off from the whale, hoisting his boats. The Frenchman soon increased his distance, while the Pequod slid in between him and Stubb's whale, whereupon Stubb quickly pulled to the floating body and hailing the Pequod to give notice of his intentions at once proceeding to reap the fruit of this unrighteous cunning. Seizing his sharp boat spade, he commenced an excavation in the body, a little behind the side fin. You would almost have thought he was digging a cellar there in the sea. And when at length his spade struck against the gaunt ribs, it was like turning up old Roman tiles and pottery buried in fat English loam. His boat's crew were all in high excitement, eagerly helping their chief and looking as anxious as gold hunters. And all the time, numberless fowls were diving and ducking and screaming and yelling and fighting around them. Stubb was beginning to look disappointed, especially as the horrible nosegay increased, when suddenly from out the very heart of this plague there stole a faint stream of perfume which flowed through the tide of bad smells without being absorbed by it, as one river will flow into and then along with another, without it all blending with it for a time. I have it! I have it! cried Stubb with delight, striking something in the subterranean regions. A purse! A purse! Dropping his spade, he thrust both hands in and drew out handfuls of something that looked like ripe Windsor soap or rich, mottled old cheese, very unctuous and savory withal. You might easily dent it with your thumb. It is of a hue between yellow and ash color, 
And this, good friends, is ambergris, worth a gold guinea an ounce to any druggist. Some six handfuls were obtained, but more was unavoidably lost in the sea, and still more, perhaps, might have been secured were it not for impatient Ahab's loud command to stub to desist and come on board, else the ship would bid them goodbye. Chapter 92, Ambergris. Now this ambergris is a very curious substance, and so important as an article of commerce that in 1791, a certain Nantucket-born Captain Coffin was examined at the bar of the English House of Commons on that subject. For at that time, and indeed until a comparatively late day, the precise origin of ambergris remained, like amber itself, a problem to the learned. Though the word ambergris is but the French compound for gray amber, yet the two substances are quite distinct. For amber, though at times found on the seacoast, is also dug up in some far inland soils, whereas ambergris is never found except upon the sea. Besides, amber is a hard, transparent, brittle, odorless substance used for mouthpieces to pipes, for beads and ornaments. But ambergris is soft, waxy, and so highly fragrant and spicy that it is largely used in perfumery, in pastilles, precious candles, hair powders, and pomatum. The Turks use it in cooking and also carry it to Mecca for the same purpose that frankincense is carried to St. Peter's in Rome. Some wine merchants drop a few grains into claret to flavor it. Who would think, then, that such fine ladies and gentlemen should regale themselves with an essence found in the inglorious bowels of a sick whale? Yet so it is. By some, ambergris is supposed to be the cause, and by others the effect, of the dyspepsia in the whale. How to cure such a dyspepsia it were hard to say unless by administering three or four boatloads of Brandreth's pills and then running out of harm's way, as laborers do in blasting rocks. I have forgotten to say that there were found in this ambergris certain hard, round, bony plates, which at first Stubb thought might be sailors' trouser buttons. But it afterwards turned out that they were nothing more than pieces of small squid bones embalmed in that manner. Now that the incorruption of this most fragrant ambergris should be found in the heart of such a decay, is this nothing? Bethink thee of that saying of St. Paul in Corinthians about corruption and incorruption, how that we are sown in dishonor but raised in glory, and likewise call to mind that saying of Paracelsus about what it is that maketh the best musk. Also, forget not the strange fact that of all things of ill savor, cologne water, in its rudimental manufacturing stages, is the worst. I should like to conclude the chapter with the above appeal, but cannot, owing to my anxiety to repel a charge often made against whalemen, and which, in the estimation of some already biased minds, might be considered as indirectly substantiated by what has been said of the Frenchman's two whales. Elsewhere in this volume, the slanderous aspersion has been disproved that the vocation of whaling is throughout a slatternly, untidy business. But there is another thing to rebut. They hint that all whales always smell bad. Now how did this odious stigma originate? I opine that it is plainly traceable to the first arrival of the Greenland whaling ships in London, more than two centuries ago, because those whalemen did not then, and do not now, try out their oil at sea as the southern ships have always done, but cutting up the fresh blubber in small bits, thrust it through the bungholes of large casks, and carrying it home in that manner. The shortness of the season in those icy seas and the sudden and violent storms to which they are exposed, forbidding any other course. 
The consequence is that upon breaking into the hold and unloading one of these whale cemeteries in the Greenland dock, a savor is given forth somewhat similar to that arising from excavating an old city graveyard for the foundations of a lying-in hospital. I partly surmise also that this wicked charge against whalers may be likewise imputed to the existence on the coast of Greenland in former times of a Dutch village called Skamerenburg or Smerenburg, which latter name is the one used by the learned Fogo von Slack in his great work on smells, a textbook on that subject. As its name imports, smear, fat, berg, to put up, this village was founded in order to afford a place for the blubber of the Dutch whale fleet to be dried out, without being taken home to Holland for that purpose. It was a collection of furnaces, fat kettles, and oil sheds, and when the works were in full operation, certainly gave forth no very pleasant savor. But all this is quite different from a South Sea sperm whaler, which in a voyage of four years, perhaps, after completely filling her hold with oil, does not, perhaps, consume fifty days in the business of boiling it out. And in the state that it is casked, the oil is nearly scentless. The truth is that living or dead, if but decently treated, whales as a species are by no means creatures of ill odor. Nor can whalemen be recognized by the nose. Nor indeed can the whale possibly be otherwise than fragrant, when as a general thing he enjoys such high health taking abundance of exercise, always out of doors. Though, it is true, seldom in the open air. I say that the motion of a sperm whale's flukes above water dispenses a perfume as when a musk-scented lady rustles her dress in a warm parlor. What then shall I liken the sperm whale to for fragrance, considering his magnitude? Must it not be to that famous elephant, with jeweled tusks and redolent with myrrh, which was led out of an Indian town to do honor to Alexander the Great? This has been Moby Dick. Please join us next time when we meet a castaway. <laughs>